Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Paul says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ as my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for the beauty of these words as we see Paul pouring out his heart here about the priorities in his life and what you had done for him and through him. Help us to take them to heart today in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Again, I'm glad you're here today. Last week, I shared with you a message I entitled, Dear Younger Me, after the song titled, Dear Younger Me. So I just copied that song. And I told you I had to split it in half, uh, one last week and one half last week, and the other half is today. And so today is uh, Dear Younger Me, part two. And so uh, we just wanted to share with you a few more things that I get, didn't get a chance to last Sunday morning. I mentioned to you last week that life isn't always easy, that we should let go of the past, that we should stop living in fear, and we must remember that God's calling is on our life. Those were the basic things I wanted to share with you last time. And some of your responses were interesting after the service, and everybody had good things to say. It's always interesting standing at the front door as people walk by, hearing your response to something in the message that, that was meaningful to you, or a particular verse in the Bible that uh, spoke to you. There were, again, they were all positive, but I noticed that a number of you had uh, quite a few things that you would have liked your younger self to know. And there was also this discussion among a couple of you of whether or not your younger self would even listen to what you have to say. Because we didn't listen to our parents. <laughs> Why would we listen to an older version of ourselves? Because that's kind of what our parents were. Would you even listen? Would you even read a letter that you wrote to yourself? Of course, I also told you that we can't go back in time. We can't write a letter to our younger self and deliver it. And so the only purpose in writing a letter called Dear Younger Me, and I encourage you to do, that, to do that, and I still encourage you to do that. It's just kind of for posterity's sake that you have that and maybe want to share that one day uh, with your loved ones. Lessons that you learned in your life that you wish you had, you had known when you were younger. The truth is, if I could go back in time, I'd probably slap myself uh, for a number of reasons. It would just be more than a letter. I just want to shake myself and say, what are you thinking, boy? Of course, that's probably what my parents wanted to do all the time as well. But we can't go back. All we can do is learn and move forward. With that, there are so many things that I think would be helpful, by the way, if I were to sit down and when I wrote this message today, or not today, this week, I, I thought of what, what would I like to say to myself? If you could go back in time, what would you say to yourself? If you could send a letter in the past, what would you say? And the truth is, I'm kind of wordy. It would be a thick letter. I mean, it'd be long. It would be a book. 
There are a lot of things I would like to say to my younger self. In, in fact, there are specific events and occasions I would like to go back and say, hey, don't do that or don't say that. Don't act like that or be sure to do this or be sure to do that. Just basic things that I understand now that I look back and think, what was I thinking? Why, why did I say that? Why did I, what, I, what, was I, what was going on in my head? And so I'd like to be able to share that. I don't have time to read the whole letter to you today. I just wanted to share a few uh, highlights that I mentioned. One is this, and these are pretty simple and basic and straightforward, but they're important. Again, these are the most important. One is be satisfied. Be satisfied. Our commercial world is built on dissatisfaction. Unfortunately, that thinking bleeds over into our spiritual lives and our relationships as well. In fact, not only in our culture, but cultures throughout the world have increasingly come to this place of don't be satisfied. With whatever you have, don't be satisfied. There's always something better, newer, uh, improved, and you need that product. And that's a part of commercialism, I get that, but it bleeds over into our spiritual lives as well so that we're never satisfied with what God gives us. One of the things I would say to myself is, young man, learn to appreciate and be satisfied with what God gives you in your life. I always was thinking, one day, one day I'm going to get this or have that or do this or go there or this is going to happen to me and this is going to happen. I'm always thinking one day, one day, one day. I'm not satisfied now, but one day I will be satisfied. And that day never comes, by the way. No matter how much you have, no matter how many blessings you receive, there's this spirit of dissatisfaction that can come over you and you're never content in your life. Psalm chapter 63, verse 2, this is David speaking. He says, I have seen you, speaking to God, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. Listen to what he says in verse 5. My soul will be satisfied. That's with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. And we get the richest of food part. You know, I, <laughs> we have rich foods here. Choice foods. If you could go out today and eat anywhere you want, you probably have a restaurant in mind right now. Or maybe your grandma's house. It's not a restaurant at all. But you know what rich food is. We have become masters of rich food in this country. Don't go to Korea if you want rich food. In, rich, in Korea, it's all raw and it's super healthy. Those things that Americans hate. I want to cook it and I want salt on it, okay? And preferably deep fried. We understand rich food. David is saying, look, the rich foods is for, are for the rich or for the kings, he says. He says, the, the, he says my soul will be satisfied as, as the richest of food, that is, God is feeding me spiritually the best, the richest of food. With singing on my lips, my mouth will praise you. Fanny Crosby wrote over 8,000 hymns. That's amazing, is it not? 
to write 8,000 anything. Songs like, tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And to God be the glory, great things he has done. She wrote some amazing hymns. But Fanny Crosby had been blind since she had been a baby. When she was eight years old, she wrote this poem. At eight years old. Now, when I was eight, I was lucky to dress myself. But she wrote this poem at eight. She said this about her blindness. Oh, what a happy soul am I. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. I like that. Be appreciative of what you have. Be content. Isaiah chapter 58 verse 11 says it this way. The Lord, this, this is, uh, this is um, the prophet Isaiah speaking. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Now twice in this brief passage, he gives the illustration of water and growth. Jerry and I went on a cruise a few weeks ago, and, and we were gone about eight or nine days. And then as we came back, of course, it had been just so dry all here in Texas. And as we came back, it immediately started raining. We got two or three good rains, or a couple of good rains. And then about a week later, this last week, we got another good rain. And it's extraordinary. We had upward football yesterday, and two weeks ago, that field was mostly brown and dead, but yesterday it was green and lush. It only took it two weeks to spring back to life. The bar ditches along the side of the road and the trees and the grass, everywhere you go, it's beautiful and green, is it not? It's extraordinary how fast that came back to life with rain. So here, Isaiah is talking about that same thing. He says, the Lord will guide you always. He'll satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. God desires to satisfy us with good things, but are we satisfied when we receive them? In 1937, architect Frank Lloyd Wright the famous architect. His houses were a masterpiece. They were considered works of art. If you own, and you don't, if you were to own a Frank Lloyd Wright house, well, you would be sitting on a fortune. But in 1937, he built a house for industrialists named Hibbard Johnson. One rainy evening, Johnson was entertaining distinguished guests in his home and it began to rain outside and his roof leaked. Just a drip, but it began to drip right down on his bald head. He was bald. Drip, 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 drip. And it was a famous house. It was a famous architect. And it bothered him so bad that right there at the, at the fellowship or the, the gathering with his distinguished friends, he called Frank Lloyd Wright on the phone. He said, he said, uh, you built this beautiful house for me and we enjoy it very much. But, but the roof leaks. 
And right now, I'm with some friends and distinguished guests, and it's leading, leaking right on top of my head. There was a pause on the line, and Frank Lloyd Wright reportedly replied, Well, why don't you move your chair? <laughs> you know, he has a point. We will be in a place of God's blessing, God's provision. He takes care of all of our needs. And we'll find one little cloud with a little drip, and we'll go under that, and we'll complain about the rain. And that's the kind of world that we live in that's dissatisfied. So younger me, I would say, learn to be satisfied with what... That doesn't mean that we can't move forward and that we can't learn more and grow more and, and uh, enjoy the blessings in the future, but just where you are, when you are, be satisfied in what gives us. Secondly, and this is important, I would say this is my kids. My kids are between 16 and 23. Don't let this world get to you. Don't let this world get to you. It will beat you up and tear you up and discourage you and depress you and use you and destroy you. Don't let this world get to you. Even worse, so many in our world that are so liberal in their thinking and so godless in our nations around the world, many of their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents, their forefathers, they have preachers and theologians that were there faithfully sharing the gospel with their children and grandchildren, but somewhere over the generations it stopped. And there's this secular mindset in our world that is anti-Christian. Not only does it not care about Christianity, it resists and struggles with it. You remember Lee Strobel. He is the famous journalist who was a renowned atheist. And he began to investigate the validity of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The truth is, he went as a journalist and decided to look at factual and historical information to disprove the existence of God. That's where it really started as an atheist. You want to be able to say, oh, this didn't really happen, or that's just a myth, and that's what he fully expected. But as he began his journey and began to investigate, and the more and more he investigated, and the more he read and, and saw in our ancient history from 2,000 years ago, he began, first of all, to realize that not only was a lot of it true, but he realized that if, for Christians... The death, burial, and resurrection, especially the resurrection of Jesus, if it didn't take place, then all of our religion is for nothing. In fact, that's what Paul says, if Christ not, be not raised, then we are of all men most pitied, most miserable. And it's true. Our faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And if it didn't happen, regardless of all the good things that Jesus said, regardless of all the wonderful passages and the beautiful verses that I love to read so much, it's all for nothing if Christ be not raised from the, from the grave. And so he focused his investigation on the resurrection of Christ as an atheist. And in the end, you know, he ended up becoming a Christian. As he looked at the actual evidence that most people don't look at, he began to realize, oh my goodness, this actually happened. In his Case for Christ series some years ago, 
Um, he said that he struggled in his life as an atheist on what he called sticking points, that there were certain things, particular things, that kept him from becoming a Christian. He says that many people, first of all, just can't believe. They can't. They can't bring themselves to do it. For whatever reason in their life, there's a sticking point that they just can't go there. I think a lot of secular scientists in our atheist scientist communities think that you have Christianity and then you have science, and the two are not interchangeable. They're, they're completely different paths, and if you're a scientist, you can't be a Christian. If you're a Christian, you can't be a scientist. But Lee Strobel found that that is simply not true. It happened to Viggo Olson, who was one of the first Christians to serve in the country of Bangladesh. Olson was a brilliant surgeon, and at one time, he and his wife, Joan, were skeptics who struggled with the I-can't-believe sticking point. Lee Strobel goes on to say they couldn't believe in God because they thought modern science proved that the Bible was based on mythology. But they didn't let skepticism stop them cold in their tracks. Instead, they let curiosity propel them toward the truth as they worked their way past that sticking point. They sought answers wholeheartedly. They began to investigate their questions like, does science disprove Christianity? Is Jesus' resurrection true? As Olson committed himself to pursuing these questions, he came to the same conclusion that so many others have, even scientists, that the story of Jesus is actually true. And advances in many areas of science, he says, point toward a creator who looks a lot like the God of the Bible. Further on in Lee Strobel's book called The Case for Faith, he quoted a scientist named James Tour head of the Nanoscience Center at Rice University. He's a scientist who's the head of the Nanoscience Center, or what at the t time of the writing of the book he was, at Rice University, large university. And he said this, <clears throat> as a scientist, he said, I build molecules for a living. I, began, I can't begin to tell you how difficult that job is. I stand in awe of God because of what he has done through his creation. Only a rookie who knows nothing about science would say science takes away from faith. If you really study science, it will bring you closer to God. Some have that sticking point, though. They just can't let themselves go there. I'm not going to. I can't. I just can't. Lee Strobel says there's another sticking point, and it's not the can't. It's the don't want to. They don't want to believe. In fact, that explains many in our culture, in our world today, they don't want to believe because God is a moral God. And if there is a God, God made us, there's a purpose for our life and a reason for us being here. I'll get to that in a minute. And so if God did that, God has a purpose and reason for that. And we say that God created us out of an act of love. Creation is an act of love, and therefore God is a moral God. And if God is a moral God, then he has expectations of us. Just like parents, we have expectations of our children. We hope that we, they don't grow up to be murderers and bank robbers and drug dealers. I, I assume you hope that. Yes, amen? Okay. <laughs> I, hope, I don't know. Maybe I don't, I don't know what you wish for. I hope my kids don't become bank robbers, at least they're murderers and whatever else I said. We hope as parents they, 
because we love them, that they'll grow up to be the kind of godly people that we desire them to be, that they were meant to be, that were, they were made to be. Well, God desires the same for us as well. And a lot of people don't want that. They go, nope, I don't want to let go of this habit or this hobby or this lifestyle or this path that I'm on. I don't want that path. I want my path. And they simply don't want to believe. In John chapter three, verse nine, the writer says this, Verse 19, excuse me. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness. Men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. I challenge you, if you're sitting out there today and you're thinking, I just really don't want that. Are you sure you don't believe because it's not true? Or you don't believe because you don't want it, even if it is true? So those are different things. Ultimately, it is a mass delusion created by a culture willing to pretend God does not exist in order to satisfy their own desires. Or maybe you are willing, but you just don't know the way. Now, if you're in that place, I've got good news for you. I'm about to tell you. <laughs> you're willing, but you just don't know what to do. If you don't know the way home, and I would write my younger me this statement. Because what makes an eternal difference in your life is sharing your faith with others. We believe that the Bible is good news, amen? If we believe that the Bible is good news and that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ represents hope and gives us hope, not just represents hope, it is hope. And if we really believe that, that we have an eternity after this life in heaven with God, for those that God brings to him. If we believe that, those who receive salvation through Jesus Christ, if we believe that, we should be sharing that. And I would say to my younger me, you need to get at it. Don't wait till you're 40 and then start. Don't wait till you're 50, do it now. Maybe you are willing today, but you just don't know the way. If you don't know the way home, you simply look at a map. Or if you don't know what a map is, you look at a navigation app on your phone or in your car. Now, when I first started here at First Baptist Church in 1998, I, I sought to, to visit every member and every visitor of the church, and I didn't know where anybody lived. Of course, we had no, nothing was computerized. Yes, I'm that old. And so I, I, we had these, what was called a Mapsco. You remember those? It was like a book. Uh, uh, and you page after page and it was all in grids and there were like letters and numbers and you looked in the right grid, you would look up the address at the front or the back and it would tell you what grid it was on and what page. So you go to that page, you look at the grid and you would, you would navigate to that location. So if you're out on vacation, you'd buy one of those and your passenger would navigate and you would drive. That's how it worked. Now Siri does the navigating part um, <clears throat> instead of that, but, but you had to have that. And if you didn't know where you were going, and first of all, by the way, you and I know exactly where we are. If you don't know where you are, you just pull out your phone and it tells you where you are, which is creepy, but it does. It knows exactly where you are. There are, there, navigation <clears throat> has become so specific <clears throat> that it can actually tell you what room of the house that you're in. 
That's creepy. Or what lane on the highway that you're in. That, that's interesting. But back in the day, we didn't have GPS. Never heard of that. Didn't exist. And so in order to know where we needed to go, the first thing we had to do was figure out where on earth we were. So if I was driving around in Fort Worth or in Dallas, just lost as a goose, it didn't do any good for me to find in the map where I was going until I found out where on earth I was. So you go to the nearest intersection and you start looking at signs that go, okay, I'm here and here. And you start looking at that on the map, find out where you are. Because you can't find out where you're going until you know where you are. It's the same spiritually as well. Maybe you don't know where you are spiritually. Or maybe you do. You know you need a savior. You know you need purpose and meaning in your life. You know that there's a spiritual longing in your life and you don't know how to feel that. You just don't know the way. So there is a map for you. There is a way. Now, I can tell you that all evidence suggests that there is a creation. You and I were created. In fact, secular scientists, atheist scientists all agree that this universe mostly came about to be in a big bang pretty quickly <clears throat> that it was created. Now, how? They don't know the who. They don't want to talk about. But they acknowledge that it was created. I can tell you this. This theory that the universe made itself is ridiculous. That's just silly. Nothing else makes itself. And I don't think the universe made itself. And so it was either self-created or there was a creator. And I know that there are several well-known atheist scientists say that, but their claim has absolutely no evidence to support it. They say it because they can't stand the simple and obvious idea that creation was made by a creator. And so God made you, and he made you for a reason. You have to ask that question. If you come to this realization, like Lee Storwell did, that we were created, you have to first ask the question, or immediately ask the question, why? Why would he do that? Did God arbitrarily sneeze and accidentally make the universe? No. There's tremendous design and pattern to the universe. And so God very brilliantly and powerfully made the universe. And you know he went to all that trouble for a reason. That's an important question. Why? Why does all of this exist? Why am I here? Why did God do that? Well, I can tell you that God created you because he loves you. I know that sounds touchy-feely, but the truth is that's why he did it. And I've always told you this, if you're visiting with us, I know I've told my church this many times. As a parent, I, I want children because I wanted, I, I wanted children, don't want children. I wanted children. I don't want any more, baby. We had got enough. <clears throat> but I wanted children because we wanted somebody to love, not somebody to hate. Or we, we didn't just arbitrarily have children. We wanted children. We desired to have children so that we could pour our love out on kids. Creation is an act of love. God made us because he loves us. I believe that the Bible teaches us that very fact that nothing else in this world can take the place of that purpose. Your purpose in life is simply to love God back. I would explain that to my younger self. I don't know if I could fully absorb that, but I would make that super clear. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says it this way, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know how clear that is? <clears throat> it's not complicated. 
He didn't write to the Roman church and, and give them all of these chapters. Okay, you do this, 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 this. You say this, 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 this. You pray this, this, this. You sing this, this, this. And you go over here and you go over there and you, you get into it all. He doesn't say any of that. Now, I'm not saying this is easy, but it is pretty clear and simple. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, we do understand from the rest of the letter in Romans that he is saying that we have to confess with our mouth, Romans 10, 9, and believe in our heart in the resurrection. We confess with our mouth the lordship of Jesus. We surrender to him. And we believe in faith in the resurrection. He says, and you will be saved. Which brings me to last, my last point. Always remember, I would write this to myself. Always remember that you're loved. You know, young people, listen to me, kids, youth, you're going to go through phases in your life where you think that you are not loved. I don't care how great your parents are. I don't care how many friends you have right now. The day will come where you will struggle to remember their names. My 40th high school reunion is coming up in a few weeks. I've got to go research. I've got to study that annual because I've forgotten most of their names. If they're watching, sorry guys. The years pass. And there are times in your life where those were so close to you, now they're gone and you're going to feel unloved. I want you to know whoever you are and wherever you are in your life journey, you are loved by God. I don't care if the whole world rejects you, you are loved by God. I don't care if they slander you on Facebook or I'm sorry, TikTok or whatever you younger people do. God loves you. I don't care if they shut you down. God loves you. He always has and he always will love you. He created you out of an act of love. He loved you before you were ever made. And he will love you long after this world is over. Always remember that you are loved and that you are made for love. Did you know that love is mentioned over 650 times in the Bible? 650 times, more than any other, to my knowledge, more than any other document in history by far, more than in the Quran, more than the words of Buddha, more than the famous works of Shakespeare or any other writer or philosopher, book or movie, which is astonishing to, our, to me, our secular world claims that the Bible is a, a hate book. I, I'm thinking maybe they have read the Bible. <laughs> because over and over, time and time and time again, Old Testament as well as the New, it talks about love. It is the theme of the Bible that God loves you. First John chapter four, verse 10, among just so many others. You want a, just a simple, clear, working definition of love, this is what it is. This is where it says it. This is love, just point blank, nice and short. Now, if you wanna remember or memorize the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, great chapter, by the way, that's the love chapter. That's wonderful. But if you want to share a definition with your friends, chapter 13 is a bit lengthy. Here you go, one verse. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now here's the definition of love. Did you catch it? That Christ Jesus died for us wasn't just a loving act, it is the very definition of love. And it is through Christ that we love others.
In fact, expressing love, and I would say this to my younger self, is more important than anything else in your life. Expressing love is more important than anything else in your life. That passage I mentioned, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, just verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, I can do anything in my life. I don't care where you go to school, where you get your degree, what your field of expertise becomes, how many books you author, how, many, how much money you make, how many kids you have, or how many uh, companies you work for, and how many cars and houses you own, or whatever you think defines a successful life. No matter what you do, if it is devoid of love, your life is a waste of time. It's just noise. The writer to the first Corinthians, or to the Corinthians says, a resounding gong or clanging symbol. I want my kids to be successful in life. Terry and I make a joke with our kids frequently that we want them to be tremendously successful in their careers because we're planning on them to be rich so they can pay off our house. <laughs> there are, there, <laughs> we, we love telling them that. But we know that no amount of money will give them joy and meaning. Only Christ and his love. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, Paul says it this way. It, again, it doesn't come any simpler than this. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts in life is faith expressing itself through love. So work hard, be honest, pursue excellence, stand for what is right, achieve great things. But without love, it's all a waste of time. And that love, true love, is found in Jesus. That's why Paul says what he says, and I'll close with this, back to our passage for today, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, that I read at the beginning. Paul says this, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. Now, let me stop right there. He says, whatever was, that's past tense, to my profit. There were things that were to Paul's profit. What is he talking about in his past? What things were of a prophet in his past? Where in his past is he talking about? Before Christ, before he got saved. Remember, Paul used to be named Saul. That was his original name. And Saul was a Pharisee. Now, he had a lot going for him in his life. He was a Pharisee. Pharisees were the celebrities of the day. Everybody knew their name. They followed them wherever they went. They listened and hung on every word that they said. They looked nice. By the way, there was a Pharisee outfit. Did you know that? Pharisees wore a special outfit. So everybody walked down the street, go, Ooh, there's Pharisee. You could tell by how they're dressed that's somebody important. So he had fame. He was extremely well-educated, smart guy. The Pharisees, they didn't have any illiterate Pharisees. They were the best students. They would memorize huge blocks of the Old Testament. They were smart guys, brilliant theologians. So they dressed nice. They were wealthy. They uh, were popular. Everybody loved them. And they were intelligent. They had all of that going for them. Paul says, you know, all of that prestige, fame, respect that I had from other people, all of those nice clothes that I wore and that great education and that brilliant mind. He said, compared to Jesus, 
In fact, here's what he says. I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And he has lost all of it. No longer prestigious, no longer has any money, no longer has a home to live in, no longer has those nice clothes. On and on and on you could go. It's all gone. He said, you know what? I don't care. I don't care. That's just a bunch of junk anyway. I didn't need that stuff. I found something better. And he says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Ah, oh, a reminder, younger me. Why spend all your time and energy wanting and worrying about this thing or that thing or that, this that ultimately has no importance. The atheists run after those things. It doesn't give their life any meaning either. So my life will come and go quickly enough, and so will yours. But whatever good there is in it and ever was is found in Christ. Pray with me. Father, as we come to you today, we thank you so much for the opportunity to live a life that we know you. That you don't just leave us here wandering in darkness, that you give us a guide, a map to purpose and meaning, and his name is Jesus Christ. Forgive us for the time that we wasted on meaningless things. Paul says are just junk compared to knowing Jesus. Father, I pray that if there is one here today that has not surrendered their life to Christ, and for those who have, a reminder to us all, remind us of what's truly important in our life. Help us to be satisfied where we are with what we have. Not that we can't work hard and, and, and be blessed more, but where we are with what you've given us today. May we be satisfied. We have clothes on our back. We're not starving. We're doing all right. You have taken care of us. You have provided. Thank you. Help us to be satisfied with the relationships that you've given us. That we're not always longing for something else, somewhere else, with someone else. Wishing we had had better parents, or better kids, or better spouses, or a better boss. On and on the list goes. And we can be dissatisfied with all of our relationships all the time. Never, never really being satisfied. Father, help us to find satisfaction where we are, with whom we, we are, in Christ. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you? Are you truly satisfied? Are you always longing? Is your mind far afield, always looking for that next thing, that next person, that next uh, object to acquire, always wanting the bigger, better deal? Or will you be satisfied with what you have? I want you to know why you can't go back in time. You can start right now. It is not too late. I don't care how old you are. You can start right here, right now. Living the life for which your Creator made you. 
a life of love in Christ. Would you be willing to do that? This is a time of invitation for you. Maybe you just want to come and kneel in prayer. God is speaking to you or maybe you or your family want to join with First Baptist and become members here and you want to serve this community out of love from this body of believers. Or maybe you want to take that step that Lee Strobel did, that journey of faith, realizing that this secular world does not satisfy. There is a spiritual longing in all of us that is found only in Christ. And you want to come down and say, I want to give my life to Jesus. That's all you have to do. And I'll talk with you and pray with you. If God is calling right now, Here's your chance. Would you stand? No one's looking around. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. As you're praying right now, you come.